my question for starters today is it's simply this for what are you thankful for what are you thankful Albert Schweitzer once said, train yourself never to put off the word or action for the expression of gratitude. Something happens, say you're thankful. Show that you're thankful. I came across an article last week called 20 Questions for Thanksgiving, written by Karen Horneffer Ginter. And a few of the questions caught my attention. For example, one of the questions was, what act of kindness has made the difference in your life? Another one, what challenging experience has ended up changing your life for the better? Because you know, often it's the tough times or experiences that are not all that pleasant at the time that enable us to grow and for which we should be thankful. Or how about this one? Name three days in your life that you feel especially grateful for. When I think about being thankful, I'm reminded of a few passages from the Old Testament. The first being Psalm 118. Uh, if you like responsive readings, Psalm 118 is an example of a composite pro processional as well as with responsive voices. And as they were passing through the streets of Jerusalem, the leader would call upon the people and, and they would speak. And the chorus that they would respond with was the liturgical phrase, His steadfast love endures forever. But notice how the psalm begins, much like the one Rich shared with us. And many of the psalms include the phrase, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And four more times in Psalm 118, even though it only has 29 verses, four more times there are words of thanksgiving. Verse 19, upon their arrival at the temple to worship, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Verse 21, thanking God for salvation. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And both of the last two verses, the final stanza, 28 and 29, which is a doxology that actually alludes back to the song of Moses, which he quotes in verse 14. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. A while back we looked at Ezra in the Old Testament. And the last standing prophet of the Old Testament, Ezra, chapter 7 verse 10 tells us that Ezra, he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules before Israel. But notice what's taking place in chapter 3, verse 11. 
The foundation of the temple has been completed. And with echoes of Solomon's celebrations, there are also contrasts. There's no ark, no visible glory, indeed no temple, only the foundation. And yet, verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. All of this thanksgiving and celebration for just the foundation of the temple. So let me ask you one more time. For what are you truly thankful? And how do you express it? Last Sunday, we showed how Paul made and sustained the charge that all of mankind is under the dynamic of sin. We are sinners. I am a sinner. I didn't say I was a sinner. I am a sinner. I make mistakes every day. Things that I do that I know I shouldn't do. And things that I don't do that I know I should be doing. Both categories are sins. Sins of commission and sins of omission. I also shared with you how Paul employed the rabbinical preaching technique called Shiraz. The stringing together of Old Testament passages. Paul used seven. One from Ecclesiastes, five from Psalms, one from Isaiah. To drive home his point. And what Paul was trying to establish was the devastating, universal, sinful character of us as human beings. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Today we pick up with verse 21 of chapter 3. And as bad as the picture has been so far in Romans, now Paul gives us something for which we should be truly thankful for. One of the commentators that I read, Leon Morris, in his commentary, he says that chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Another man by the name of Donald Barnhouse, an American preacher and pastor and theologian, you might have heard him on, on his radio programs, a radio pioneer and writer. He actually inscribed in his Bible a heart over these verses. And when asked about it, he said, I am convinced today, after many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the Bible. So let's see what he's talking about. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. How many? All. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Now here's the image I want you to focus on today. Again, since many will be joining together this week with family and or friends, what are some of the things for which you will be thankful? What are some of your thanksgiving blessings? Now, if I would have kept reading in chapter 3 to the conclusion of the chapter, you would have quickly picked up on the fact that Paul is pointing to the fact that instead of boasting about what we have or boasting about who we are, we should assume a posture of thanksgiving. For any honest person, the admission of the 19th century Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev, I think it says it all. Here's what he wrote. I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know that the heart of a good man, I know what it's like. And it's terrible. You hear what he's saying? That in reality, even those who we know and profess to be good people, by and large, still our heart is not good like it should be. The reality is that all of mankind is under the dynamic of sin. And this dynamic presents a dilemma both for God and for man. From the human point of view, the dilemma is that as profoundly corrupt as we are, how can we ever be made righteous in the sight of God? And in terms of the divine, justice demands condemnation. And yet, divine love wants to reach out to even the guilty human race. What is it that the Bible says? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we got our act together. He died for us so that He could help us get our act together. Now given this dilemma, we come to what many have acknowledged to be the great divide of Paul's letter to the Romans. The turning point, so to speak. And I think these verses could be a turning point for each of us as we look into this passage in a little bit more depth. What is the miraculous plan of God 
whereby profound, corrupt sinners such as you and I can be made just before a holy God. And what I see in our text for today is that this is possible for three reasons. And they're stated consecutively in the verses that I just read, verses 21 to 26. And for which I am thankful for. And the first that I want to point out is this. I am thankful for the miracle of justification. And that's shown in verses 21 and 22. When Paul writes in terms of the righteousness of God, he's not pointing to a legal righteousness. He's speaking of God's faithfulness to His promises. So in verse 21, he reminds his readers that this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is that radical righteousness that's apart from the law? That even though we have failed, God will not fail. That even though we break our promises, God will remain faithful to His promises. It's not a righteousness, and I know you've heard this taught, it's not a righteousness that gets imputed into us. That is not good theology. It is the righteousness of God. His faithfulness to His covenant promises. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And what this means for us is that our radical corruption, so clearly spelled out in, in Paul's Shiraz as well as in, man, chapter 1, that last whole half of the chapter, it precludes any hope of making it on our own efforts. Don't kid yourself. You cannot do enough good things to earn salvation. Larry King was conversing with Albert Muller. And Larry King was, is, I, I think Larry King's a seeker, by the way. He's Jewish. But Albert Moore pressed the point. He said, how can you know that you're saved? And Larry King said, well, I guess I can. Because in our belief system, since we don't have the temple anymore to offer sacrifices, it's just a matter of whether or not the good we do outweighs the bad we do. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be put on that kind of a scale. I hope that I'm doing more good than I'm doing bad. But that's not where my salvation lies. I can't earn it. It's the existence of a righteousness apart from works of the law that gives us hope. It's the miracle of justification. 
And that's possible because God has been faithful to His covenant promises. That is, the righteousness of God provided the solution so that a special righteousness could exist separate from any of our attempts. A righteousness that comes to us through our faithfulness and our loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's my hope. And I trust it's yours. Second, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly thankful for the gift of grace. The righteousness of God is a combination of His righteous character, His saving initiative, and His gift of a righteous standing as we stand before Him. For those of us who have, been, who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it is His just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing righteous those of us who are truly unrighteous. You see, justification is a legal term. It's a forensic term. It belongs to the law courts. And its opposite is condemnation. And that's why those belong to the penalty phase. In the judgment phase, we are guilty. When I stand before the throne of God, I'm going to be standing as someone who is guilty of being a sinner. But, that's when Jesus will step in and say, no, no condemnation for this one. His name is written in the book of life. I've paid the penalty for him. And what does Paul write? I, I stopped and repeated it for emphasis. For how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What I didn't emphasize when I was reading it was notice that he says, and fall short. He doesn't say, and fell short. We fall short of the glory of God every single day. I fall short of the glory of God when I get frustrated and I raise my voice and at times I even slam something down. That's not godly. I am falling short of the glory of God. I am showing that I am a sinful creature, a sin sinful being. I fall short of the glory of God. And, and I'm guilty. When I prejudge and I say to Jesse, um, look at that person over there. And either she or Autumn will say, Dad, or honey, oh yeah, I shouldn't make those prejudgments. Both condemnation and just, justification are pronouncements of a judge but in the Christian context they are the alternative verdicts which God the judge may pass on judgment day so when God justifies sinners today he anticipates his own final judgment by bringing into the present what belongs properly to the last day and this is only possible because of the gift of grace Jesus has already paid the penalty for those of us who have declared, declared and are living faithfully and living as citizens of his kingdom. And for that, 
I'm thankful. Some scholars, by the way, maintain that justification and pardon are synonymous, but they're not. Pardon is negative. The remission of a penalty or debt. I'm thankful that justification is positive. It's not only forgiveness, but it's also the bestowal of a status. It's a reinstatement. And I know this is probably not best, but maybe it'll help you. It's God being able to see me just as if I'd never seen. Because of what Jesus did. Just as if I'd never sinned. And all of that is true because of grace. And let me tell you another misnomer. Grace is not free. You think grace is free? Go back and find a copy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship in which he raises the issue of how the church in his day dealing with Germany was issuing out cheap grace. No. Uh, Grace is very costly because, and I like the acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Which leads me to my third and final point. I'm especially thankful for the sacrificial death of Christ. If God justifies freely by His grace, on what grounds does He do that? How is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising His righteousness or condoning the unrighteousness of those who He's doing it for? You see, that's our question. And God's answer is the cross. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly told the Israelite judges that they were not to condemn, or excuse me, let me state it in the positive. They were to justify the righteous and they were to condemn the wicked. And that only seems right, doesn't it? I mean, an an innocent person needs to be declared innocent and a guilty person guilty. What more elementary principle of justice could be spoken? And God even added in Exodus 23, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both and pronounced a solemn woe against those who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. And that only seems right. So how on earth can Paul affirm that God does what he forbids others to do? That he does what he says he himself will never do. That he calls it, that he does it habitually. And then he even designates himself as the God who justifies the wicked. Or we might say, who makes the righteous, who makes righteous the unrighteous. Well, sounds preposterous. Sounds like a contradiction. How can a righteous God act in a way that we would deem unrighteously? 
And so overthrow the moral order, turning it upside down. Or, it doesn't have to be unbelievable. It would be unbelievable if it wasn't for the cross of Christ. Without the cross, the justification of the unjust would be unjustified. It would be immoral and therefore impossible. And the only reason God justifies the wicked is that Christ died for the wicked. Because he shed his blood, verse 25, in a sacrificial death for us as sinners. God is able to justify the unjust. And don't forget, because many often do, Jesus Christ is God, the Son, dying for us. God's not just throwing all of His anger and His wrath on Jesus. I've heard people preach that. No. God is saying, I will go to the cross in the form of the Son and allow all that wrath to come upon me so that it doesn't have to come upon you. What God did through the cross, through the death of His Son, in our place, Paul explains by three notable expressions. First, that God justifies us through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, verse 24. Secondly, God presented Himself as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood, verse 25. And thirdly, he did this to demonstrate his justice. Again, verse 25. So, as to be just and the one who justifies those who are of faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 26. And the key words are redemption, atonement, or actually better, propitiation. It's, it's, it's the word hilasterion, which is the mystery seat in the Holy of Holies. Do you know what the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was all about? That's where the sacrifices were, were laid so that it could go up to God. And he says, that's who Jesus became. His blood is a clear reference to the sacrificial death. It's the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross that secures the redemption of sinners like me. And it's a propitiation of God's wrath and a demonstration of His justice. And for that, I am thankful. So here's my challenge. And it's really pretty simple. Instead of just repeating the words from rote memory, let's slow down and think about how we truly are thankful that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I don't like to stop there. I like to go on into verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. You see, that's the angry, mean God. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You again as we are pausing to think about thanksgiving, to think about these things for which we should be thankful. The mystery 
the marvelous miracle of justification. The gift of grace and the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, on the cross so that we could be saved. Help us to have that as that for which we are truly and most thankful this week. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning.